Okay, we are back in Jonah today. If you'll turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 3 today. And I think what it's going to end up being a six-part series of Jonah. But I want to start off with this question, guys. Well, first of all, the title of the message is um, Salvation to the Nations. Salvation to the nations. That's what we're going to see in this text today. That God, the God of Israel, known as the God of Israel in the Old Testament, is indeed always intended to be the, the, the Savior to the nations, to the Gentile nations, not just to the nation of Israel. And so I went back and forth on what the title would have been. Uh, I, I started out by giving it the title, The God of Second Chances. The God of second chances, because we see that in this text. But I think salvation to the nations is more of a, really the theme of the book and really the theme of the whole Bible. And we're going to see that today. But aren't you thankful for second chances? I think we can all be thankful for second chances. Second chances is really just a result of grace. Somebody giving us grace. You know, you ever messed up bad on your job? And maybe even to the point where your, your boss would have been justified in firing you. But, uh, but he gave you a second chance. Or maybe in a relationship. We've probably all done that you know, in, in any relationship. I've uh, said something we shouldn't have said, but the, but the other person is forgiving, and, and, and you get a second chance. I remember when, when Trish and I were dating years ago, uh, <clears throat> she was, uh, it, it was like it was set up as a blind date, which when I, did, when I met her, it was, it was that type of deal. We met, and... Uh, but she was, um, through this ministry, Singles for Christ, I was supposed to meet her at this Baptist church in Choctaw. Volleyball on a Friday night. And, and the lady that was setting us up said, she'll be there. And I worked like a 12-hour day. And I said, I ain't going. So I stood her up. <laughs> but I got a second chance. And I'm so thankful that I got a second chance in God's providence. Or maybe that speeding ticket that the officer let slide when you were driving... 10, 50 miles an hour over and he gave you and you and your heart just sunk, you know, the ticket's coming and he and he gave you he, he let it slide, he gave you a second chance. Obviously we can see it in the Bible. When we think about Moses who killed remember when Moses killed the Egyptian man who was abusing one of his Hebrew brothers and murder or, or and Moses murdered the guy. Obviously he received a second chance. God restored him and used him mightily in delivering his people from Pharaoh. Another obvious one is David committing uh, adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband murdered, lying, being deceitful, uh, stealing the man's wife, just commandment after commandment he broke. But we see how God restored him, obviously gave him a second chance. In In the New Testament, I think the obvious one would be Peter, the Apostle Peter, who had a way of putting his foot in his mouth. And... uh, but we, but we know the story. That he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. And it said he, he says he denied Him with an oath. I swear I don't know that man. And yet we see God restoring Him. Christ restoring Him. God is indeed a God of second chances. And so we're going to see that in our text today. In Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 3, guys. If you would stand for ten verses for the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 3 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You guys can be seated. Father, we thank You, Lord, again for allowing us to gather, Lord. We, I just ask You for Your grace today. Lord, that You would help me, that You would assist me to proclaim Your Word clearly, that You would build up and strengthen Your people today, Lord, that You would convict us in areas where that's needed and, and encourage us and strengthen us, Lord. And we pray most of all that Jesus Christ would be glorified and that Your will would be accomplished. In His name we pray, Amen. So God is a God of second chances. That's what we, that's what we see in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It was a second time that, uh, that, that, that we see Him coming to Him with the same command, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But, but what we see by the second time, guys, is that, that God was not finished with Jonah. Right? He was not finished with Jonah. He didn't perish in the bottom of the sea. He's not finished with him. But he had to take him through a lot to get him to this point. And so, if you guys remember just over chapters 1 and 2, we know the command, right? Back in chapter 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. But what did Jonah do? He hightailed it the other way. Went down to Joppa, caught a ship to Tarsus, which was in the opposite direction. So he rebelled the Lord's command. And so God in His grace, He pursued him. He sent a storm to get His attention. He even used pagan sellers to get His attention. And through God's providence, Jonah had told the sailors that, hey, the only way this storm's going to stop is if you throw me overboard. And so they did, it. they did, and these guys were fearful. They were frightened. They were frightened from the storm. And then when they realized who Jonah was, that he was a prophet of the God of Israel, the God who had performed these miracles and, and delivered Israel from Pharaoh, and who had defended them in their wilderness wanderings against these other nations, this was the God. And so they became fearful of the Lord and they, they did what they, what they thought was God's will, so they, so they tossed Him overboard. And then it says they worshipped Him. They worshipped the Lord. And then, and then in chapter 2, we see Jonah, the one that was fleeing the presence of God, sinking to the bottom of the sea. And it says he, he cried out to the Lord. And God, in His grace and mercy, sent a big fish to swallow him up. Hey, not the, most, not the best way to get rescued, but he was rescued indeed by the fish. And so we see it the second time here. He is the God of second chances. He's not finished with Jonah. But here, after all of this, He's ready, right? Jonah's finally ready. The hard-headed prophet is ready to do what the Lord asked him to do. And so the theme of today's sermon would be this. The Lord uses those who have fallen, like Jonah. He fell into rebellion. The, the Lord uses those who have fallen to deliver the light of His Word to those who are lost in darkness. That's the only people He has to use. Because ain't nobody in here never, never fallen into sin. Or, or We've all blown it. That's the point, guys. This is a God of, it's, it's a message of grace to us as the people of God and obviously to those who are still sitting in darkness. <clears throat> so if you look at your outline... I have four, four points today. And the first one is this. In verse 2, we see the same command by the Lord. The same command by the Lord. What do I mean by the same command? Well, the same as in chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, the initial command was, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. And here we see it again in verse 2 in chapter 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and proclaim to it the proclamation that I'm going to tell you. Arise. Remember what that phrase meant, guys? It, it didn't necessarily mean stand up. It means do it promptly, quickly. Go, Jonah. Go to that great city, that large city. 
When the Bible describes it as a, as a great city, it's not a great city by virtue. It was a very wicked and violent city, but it was large. The population was estimated, and really that's taken from, uh, in large part from the last verse of the, of the book when it says 120,000 of those who didn't know their right hand from their left hand, which most, most theologians, commentators would just see that to mean children, infants. So you think the population was probably a good 600,000 people. And it's hard to know for sure how large, you know, as, as far as area the city was. I, I read a lot of different things, so it really doesn't matter, but we know it's a large city, that great city. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. What's he saying here? What, what is God telling Jonah? I want you to go to Nineveh and preach my word. It's no different than us, is it not? We, we're to preach God's word, not our word. We're not to go and, 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 and just and give people the message that we think they might accept. Taking, or taking away from God's Word or adding to it. No, he says, go and make the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Go and preach my Word. John Gill, in his commentary, John Gill was the, uh, the old, they called him particular Baptist in his day, but he would be considered like a Reformed Baptist. He says this in his commentary, the Word of the Lord must be spoken just as it is delivered. Nothing must be added to it or taken from it. The whole counsel of God must be declared. Prophets and ministers must preach, not as men bid them, but as God bids them. And that would go for all of us, guys. That wouldn't go for just me up here. That would go for all of us when we, are, when we have a chance to communicate the Word of God to people, folks. Don't take away from God's Word. Don't add to it to try to make it more palatable, try to rub off the sharp edges of the gospel. People need to hear those sharp edges. The word of God is, is it's like a it, it's like a sword, right? It is like a sword. It, it it they need to hear the truth. And so we're to preach the word faithfully and allow God to do what he's going to do. So he didn't call Jonah to go preach his opinion. He didn't call Jonah to go preach a uh, popularity message and he's not calling us to do that either, guys. He's not calling us to... Uh, I saw a quote on Facebook this week. I should have wrote it down. It was something by Leonard Ravenhill about, you know, we don't, we don't preach to please men. We preach to please God. And it was no different with Jonah. Go make the proclamation that I told you to make. So we see, point number one, the same command by the Lord. Secondly, we see a different response by Jonah in verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was, a, was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So we see a different response by Jonah. Point number two has three sub-points. The first one is this. This different response of Jonah was obedient. That's the main way it was different. It, this time it's obedient. What, what does it say in, in verse 3? Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He picked a long way to go. He picked a long route all the way down to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of the fish, vomited up on the land, but God has got His attention and now He obeys. Jonah learned, beloved, he learned from the consequences of his disobedience. That's the way God has set this world up. We learn. We're to learn from, from, from our mistakes. We're to learn. Even, even if you're not a Christian, God has set up this world, the, 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 the principle of reaping and sowing. You're going to reap what you sow. Whether, you, whether, you, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. You're going to reap what you sow. But as a child of God, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that God in His love, He disciplines us. His hand of discipline was upon Jonah. And Jonah was taught by the rod of discipline, right? What do we do when we, we train our children? We teach them with a rod of discipline. 
I don't care what this world says. We teach them with a rod of discipline. Spank them on their behind. That's, what, that's why God designed it with a cushion. Discipline. That's not the only form of discipline. But this is a picture of God's discipline. And Jonah learned it. And God is sovereign. We see God's sovereignty in this, in this whole account. Think about the fact, guys, that, that He had prepared Jonah. The Lord had prepared Jonah through his disobedience or in his disobedience to be where he's at right now. He had to go through this, this rebellion to be where he's at right now. Now, that does not justify Jonah's disobedience, but it just shows that God even uses that. He uses our sin for our good. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we say, oh, let's, let's go sin so that grace may increase. By no means, Paul says. But God is so sovereign that He used Jonah's disobedience to get him to where he's at right now. And we know that God does this. Romans 8.28, God causes all things, right? All things. That can include your disobedience and your sin and your rebellion. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And in verse 29, we know that... We, the Lord says, or Paul says, that His purpose is conforming us to the image of Christ. So God uses even our disobedience, just like He did Jonah's, to teach us, to conform us, to sanctify us. And think of the boldness, guys. Think of what Jonah, think of what we looked at the last few times with Jonah. Think of the boldness that he would have after experiencing what he had experienced under God's discipline. Here he is in Nineveh, okay? He had, been, he, he, had, he had attempted to flee from the presence of God and God brought a storm to stop, stop him in his tracks. He used a bunch of pagan sailors in the process and then he had him thrown overboard and was sinking to the bottom of the sea where Jonah finally cried out in desperation. And again, like I said a while ago, yes, he was rescued, but that would not have been pleasant. And so, and then on top of that, he was vomited out onto dry land. It's bad enough to vomit when I think of just vomiting myself, but being vomited out of a big fish. I could just imagine Jonah saying, I'm going to obey God now. I don't care what men say. You don't know what I've been through. I've been swallowed by a fish at the bottom of the sea. And so it would, it would, I think, create a form of boldness. And that's what happens when, 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 God, when God saves you and you realize what you've been saved from, there is, a, there is a matter of boldness that you have. Because you know, I was on my way to hell and although I am fearful by nature, listen, I know what God saved me from. I know my God. I know how holy He is and how righteous He is. And I fear Him more than I fear man. And so I remember a time in my life, guys, years ago, that I went through a short period of rebellion and, and got out of God's will. And I, I remember the disciplined hand of God upon me back in 2002. And I don't want to go back to that. That was a miserable time of my life. Um, very similar to what you read in the Psalms when David was, was confessing his sin. I felt, the, I felt the hand of God heavy upon me. And so... Yeah, we're to learn when God disciplines us. But we see His, His response was different. It was obedient. Secondly, it was immediate. He had an immediate response in verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah arose. Again, he, he arose promptly. He went. And, and then look at verse 4. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out. He cried out his message. And so what we see in this is his, he had an immediate response. He went and he began to go through the city on the first day's walk proclaiming what God had told him to proclaim. He began preaching immediately. That's so important, guys, to learn from this. This is the way to obey God. It's to do it immediately. And so, can I give you some advice today? And I give you this advice because I have failed at it so many times. 
in this area. Again, this book is this book in a large part. It's got many themes to it: God's sovereignty, His mercy. But we see we see missions in this book, whether it be foreign missions, missions to your neighbor. We see how God has a heart for the nations. And so we see Jonah responding immediately. And so, and so, beloved, whether it's your neighbors, maybe you get new neighbors or, or your friends, I, I can share with you, I can give you some advice through many times of failing, also doing it correctly. When, when, when God brings somebody new into your life and you, and you feel the burden of the Lord to share the gospel with them, can I advise you to do it immediately and not wait? It gets real weird and real awkward the longer you wait. You know the saying, guys, you got to build a relationship with them before you can ever speak about Jesus Christ. I, I would just urge you not to listen to that. Don't hear me wrong. We want to build relationships. Those are good. Build relationships. But share the gospel with them first and then build a relationship. Because, well, first of all, they may die before you ever get to it. Second of all, it could become more awkward and more difficult the longer you wait. And I know from experience. And then on a, on a different level, I can share with you uh, something that happened to me years ago. Where And I'd been preaching on the streets for a couple, two, three years. And, uh, and so, I don't know if I'd ever been by myself, but I know this one particular time I went to Bricktown by myself. And I got down there and I let myself become overcome with fear. The fear of man. And I just sat there and just looked at people for probably 30 minutes to an hour. I never, I never preached, which is what I went to do. I never talked to anybody. I never even gave a tract away. I just got my car and went back home. And because I just let fear just overwhelm me and it just talked me out of it, the whole thing, and I just went home. And so I've learned to just take those opportunities and, and, and do it sooner rather than later. And that's what we see Jonah doing. That's what we see Jonah doing. That's one thing I appreciate about, appreciate about Shiloh. Um, for those who, you know, who have been able to come regularly on Wednesday nights, really since we planted our church, you know that Shiloh, through God's providence, has had several different jobs. But what I, what I so love about Shiloh is he, he, uh, he, he, makes it a, he makes it an intentional thing to do to, to try to witness to these men. And God's given him a lot of opportunities. And so, but, he, but he's doing it sooner rather than later. Because I can promise you guys, it does become really weird. Hey, I know I've you know I know I've lived by you for twenty years, but could I share Christ with you? Now I'm not saying don't do that. If you have an opportunity, go ahead and do it. Just fight through the awkwardness and say, "Hey, forgive me." Um, so he, what we see, he he was obedient. He did it immediately, and and lastly, he did it urgently. He was urgent in his response in verse four. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He cried out. That means he lifted up his voice like a trumpet, which I believe is what Isaiah says. Lifted up his voice. He, he preached. It was an urgent message. It was a simple message. But it was an urgent message of judgment. It was direct. It was simple. It was clear. In English, what we have recorded in our English Bibles, it was eight words. In Hebrew, it was five words. But it was blessed by God. It was blessed by God. Why was it blessed by God? Because as we looked at earlier, it was God's words and not Jonah's. Jonah preached God's word and he did it with urgently, or he did it with urgency. Urgency. Turn in your Bibles to uh, flip over to Jeremiah to your left, chapter 23, and I want to look at a quick example of the opposite of that, of the opposite of um, declaring God's words. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. 
They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise Me, The Lord has said, You will have peace. As for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, Calamity will not come upon you. Imagine if Jonah had said that, guys. He'd be a false prophet. Verse 18, But but who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear His Word? Who has given heed to His Word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and carried out the purposes of His heart. In the last days you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in My counsel, then they would have announced My words to My people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. That is how not to do it. Not to do it. We are to preach God's words, which obviously we have in our Bibles. And so I do, I do believe though, guys, we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but I do believe obviously that He said more than just these eight words as He's walking through Nineveh. I believe that He probably would have communicated something similar to what He communicated to the, to the sailors on the ship, that He was a prophet of the God of Israel, who His God was. Maybe even what happened to Him. I believe He would have made known their wickedness And I believe that there was some kind, because the more I've studied it, and and we'll talk about it a little bit more a little later, I believe there was some kind of warning of repentance. I will will ask you this question. Why do I believe that? Because just for a quick reference, because of the 40-day time frame, the 40-day warning that God's given them, Okay? And we'll look at it a little more later, a little later, but as compared to the sudden judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was no warning. It was sudden judgment. That was God's decree that He was going to do that. But we'll look at that a little bit at the end of the sermon. So, thirdly, we're going to see our third point in verses 5 through 9. We're going to see a repentant people. A repentant people. So, first of all, We saw the same command by the Lord. We see a different response by Jonah. And thirdly, we see a repentant people. In in verses 5 through 9, let's read verse 5 through 9. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Uh, Actually, I'm just going to take it one verse at a time. No, no, no. Uh, There's a reason I want to read 5 through 9 real quickly. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and set on ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, first of all, the first point I want to make here real, real quickly is it's, it's hard to tell. Okay, When you look at the text, when you look at verse 5 and verse 7, it's hard to tell whether the people called a fast themselves first Or, because some commentators brought this up and really brought it to my attention, or if chronologically, verse 5 comes after verse 7 by the decree of the king and his nobles. It really doesn't matter, but in case you were wondering that, it's hard to tell whether the people fasted first or whether it was a response to what the king said. But it it really doesn't matter. It's not really that important. I just wanted to point that out. But one thing we do see, this seems to be an immediate response. Uh, when, we go back, when we go back to verse 4, Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. That means on his first day that he was preaching, he cried out 
with this message. And it says, the people of Nineveh believe God. So it seems to be an immediate response. Now what is important here? What is important here is this, guys. They believed in God. That's what's important. Is the, is, is the city of Nineveh believed in God. They responded to the preaching of Jonah. They just didn't believe Jonah. They just, they just didn't believe what Jonah said, but they believed in God Himself. Beloved, people may believe what you and I tell them. Have you ever had people tell you that? I hear you. I believe what you're saying. But they're not putting their faith in Christ. That's what's important here. Is that they believed in God. They're trusting in God. The, the phrase believe in right here in the Hebrew, it describes more than, than just believing what someone has said. But rather trusting in a person. And that's what we tell people. The word believe in the New Testament, it, it means to trust. And it's the same thing going on here. These people believed in God. They saw this as a message from God and they were trusting in God. I think of Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we're going to see, the, point number, the third point is these were a repentant people, but it's combined with faith in God. And that's what we see in verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They called a fast and put on sackcloth. This was a common way in that day of expressing, expressing genuine sorrow, genuine humility, and genuine repentance. Again, just the outward acts mean nothing in and of themselves if it's not coming with true repentance. But that's what it's a sign of. And beloved, that's our message. It's the same message we preach. We see these people repenting of their wicked ways and putting their faith in God. And that's what we preach. That's the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew or Mark 1.15 Repent! And believe the gospel. You've probably heard this before, but sometimes I know people may ask you, well, I don't think you have to repent because, for example, in Acts 16, it just says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And it does say that. Other places you'll see, unless you repent, you will perish. But when we understand the clear teaching of Scripture, guys, we understand that repentance and faith always go together. That's why Paul said, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that's what we preach. Think of it like this. Any, any saving faith that, the, that you see in the Bible is a repentant faith. And, even, and, and any believing in the Bible is a believing repentance. Repentance and faith are, the, are, are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. Okay? So if anybody ever asks you that, well, I don't think you've got to repent. I don't think that's part of it. Sometimes you'll see in the Bible, just believe sometimes, repent sometimes both. But they're always going together. And that's even what we see in this text. They believe God. They turn from their wickedness. And so that's our message. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. So when the content, I believe this just means when the content of Jonah's message reached the king, we see him responding in the same way. Responding in the same way. It says he laid aside his robe in verse 6. He, he, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. All a picture of repentance once again. This is acts of symbolism in, in, in him and the king acknowledging his sinfulness and his unworthiness. That's what we see here. In verse 7, the king and his nobles, 
In verse 7 it says, He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. This is all under, all under the third point of this, the city repented. It's a repenting people. The king and his nobles took this warning from the Lord so seriously that they included the animals that the cry of man and beast, think of, think of hungry cattle, might enter the ears of the Lord. These, this, they were a fearful people taking this threat of judgment very serious. Having the animals fast would be a reminder to the people of the punishment that they deserved for their wickedness. That's what all this stuff is communicating. The same was true with the nation of Israel. When we think about different laws, when you think about different ceremonial and maybe washing and cleansing laws, John Calvin says this, the the, the cleansing of garments and of vessels, it was that the people might know that everything they touched was polluted by their filth. It was a reminder of their sin. The law was being used in Israel as a acting like a tutor, like Paul talks about in Galatians, so that the Israelites would trust in the grace of God. Now many of them didn't, but that's what the law was always meant to do. Even the ceremonial parts of the law. It was to remind them of their sin. Remind them that, that, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was a reminder of their sin. That something greater was coming. That they needed to trust in God and His mercy. But what do we have, beloved? What do we have that, that, that God has given us that reminds us of what we deserve for our sin? Well, you'll hear Shiloh mention it often. I say it. Preaching the Gospel to ourselves. Thinking about the cross. Meditating upon the cross. We're reminded of what we deserve of, of His mercy and His grace. What our, what, of our, what our sin deserves. And then even more specifically, Jesus has given the church the two ordinances that we're to practice until He returns. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Think about what those things represent, guys. You think about baptism when somebody is baptized biblically by immersion, what is going on? That person is lowered into the water. All a picture of the old man being buried with Christ and raised to walk of newness of life. So when we see somebody baptized, it's a glorious thing and it reminds us all of what happened on that cross. And when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, that's what happened. It reminds us of these things. It's a picture of the Gospel. The Lord's Supper. What do we, when we take the Lord's Supper, what is it? We're reminded of, of, the, of the blood that He shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're reminded of His body being broken on that cross for our sin. He was crushed for our sin and, and He's given us these ordinances as a means of grace. And so we are reminded by these things. And so these, these folks here were reminded by, these, by even the animals crying out that God is serious about sin. And in verse 8, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which was in his hands. It says that men may call on God earnestly. It's similar language to chapter 1, verse 14. If you remember the sailors on the boat, they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord. These were men who were idolaters when we first encountered them crying out to their own gods, but now they're crying out to the God of heaven. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And in verse uh, 2 in chapter 2, we see Jonah, the same earnestness, I called out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me as He was sinking in the sea. This is an earnest. In verse 8, this is an earnest prayer. Fervent prayer was always to accompany fasting and sackcloth. 
And so the king calls for genuine repentance. Again, these are all outward acts, or all of these, shall I say, all of these outward acts are worthless in and of themselves if not accompanied with genuine sorrow for sin. They're acts of hypocrisy. And we could do the same thing. We come in here and, and if we sing, we can take the Lord's Supper and we, and we can be real hypocritical. And obviously, hypocrisy can come on all types of levels. Even Christians can be hypocritical. But obviously, if a man is not even converted and he's coming and participated in these things, he is acting the hypocrite. And so these are all outward acts to demonstrate genuine repentance. And it says this in verse 8, that each man may turn from his wicked way. Okay? In other words, each has his own way. His way must turn from his wicked way. What is Isaiah 53, 6? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Repentance, what this text is communicating is repentance is somebody forsaking his way. And that word way, it's the idea, of, it's, it's not just a single act of sin. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if I just, yeah, if I just give up this little habit here, that's biblical repentance. That's not it. Biblical repentance is turning from your way and turning to Christ. Turning to God's way. And so that's what this is indicating. It's, it's rather, it's, it's this, this, this way, it's not just single acts of sin, but rather habitual manners of one's life. The whole course of one's life is what repentance is. It's turning and going a different direction. It's realizing that I'm wrong. I'm wrong about my thoughts about God, my thoughts about my sin. I've been wrong and I'm turning from my way. I'm turning from my way of, of being the God of my own life and I'm turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's an about face, military term. Turn around and go the other way. It describes true conversion. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That's what biblical repentance is is. And then in verse 9, who knows? The king says, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. This just tells us that the king and the nobles, they recognize God's sovereignty. And they are trusting in the will of God and the mercy of God. They're trusted in the mercy of God. You know, beloved, without 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 compromising, communicating to people how holy God is and how righteous He is and he, that He will judge sin, which we must do, we can never forget to communicate that God delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. He is a merciful God. We are reminded of that in this text of how merciful He is. I was reminded of that yesterday. How merciful God is. You don't have to, be, to try to be so reformed to fail to communicate that God desires to show mercy. He is, God is love. The prophet Ezekiel says, or the Lord says, through him I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his way and live. God is a God who delights to show mercy. And that's what we see in this text. And lastly, point number four is this. We see a relenting God. A relenting God. And so we're going to spend a few moments in this last verse. 
Because it would be one of those verses that could maybe cause somebody a little bit of trouble. You know, the whole idea of does God change? It says the Lord does not change. But I think you'll see that it's not as complicated as we might make it. Verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Okay, so real quickly, before we look at that whole idea of God relenting, I believe, because there are some who disagree, but I'm in the majority, that I believe that this was true repentance unto salvation with these people in Nineveh. That it was a true, you could call it, the greatest revival ever that's recorded. That these, that these people, they were not just delivered in a temporal sense. These people came to faith in God and they were saved from their sins. I believe that. And, and the reason I believe it, that it's the greatest revival area, or the greatest revival ever, is because of what we read a few weeks ago. If you guys remember when we, looked, when we talked about the sign of Jonah? You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 12 when He said, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. And will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I don't think Jesus would have made such a big deal about the city of Nineveh repenting if it wasn't genuine biblical repentance unto salvation. So I think this was a indeed a massive revival, if you want to use that word, where literally hundreds of thousands of people were swept into the kingdom of God. That's my point. And that's the majority view. And so a couple words I want to look at real quickly, and then we'll look at this, is um, the, word, the word relented. Uh, where it says, God saw that they turned from their wicked ways and God relented. If you have an ESV, I, I use the NAS, most of you guys know that. If you have an ESV or New King James, it's going to use the same word, relented. If you have a King James, it's going to say, Repented. And relented is a much better word. Repented, it does have the idea of changing the mind, but biblical repentance, it can be confusing because biblical repentance is also a turning away from evil. So the word relented is a better use of the word. And I studied how, how it was translated in Hebrew, but I'll just, just trust me when I say relented is better. Um, and then also the word uh, when God saw their deeds that they turned from the wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared. The NAS says calamity, ESV, New King James says disaster. Whereas the King James would say the evil. Okay, that, Again, that could be very confusing to think that, that God is doing something evil. Okay, So, I think calamity and disaster is a very, it's a much more clear communication of what's going on. So with that being said, I want to read a quote from John Gill again, who is very helpful in this, uh, in this chapter. So John Gill, again, and just understand this, who John Gill was, guys. John Gill was a very, very, very strong Calvinist preacher. So this is not a man who, he does not compromise or budge on the sovereignty of God at all. Okay? So listen to what John Gill says, and then I'm going to have a few other comments to try to Connect all of this, and I think it'll end up being really clear. John Gill says this about this passage. So it's a it's a fairly long quote, but he says this. This resembles what is done by men when they repent. Then they change their course and conduct. So the Lord, though he never changes his will, nor repents. Now he's going to be using the word repent because he used the old authorized version in his day. He says, the Lord, He never changes His will, nor repents or revokes His decrees or alters His purposes, yet He sometimes wills a change and makes an alteration in the dispensations or the, or the dealings. The dealings is what that means. In the dealings of His providence according to His unchangeable will. God in this case did not repent of His decrees Concerning the Ninevites. But of what he had said or threatened respecting the overthrow of Nineveh in case of their impenitence. 
In other words, if they had not repented, it was, it was His will that they should be told of their sin and danger and by this means be brought to repentance and the wrath threatened them be averted. So that here was a change not of His mind and will concerning them, but of His outward dealings towards them. Okay, so hopefully you can get some of that. But I think some of these next few points will make it clear. That one of the points he made was, uh, let, let me read, I want to point out one thing before I move on. He says, God in this case did not repent of His decrees concerning the Ninevites. And beloved, that's just simply saying, whatever God decrees is what happens. We can look back in history, whatever happened, that was His decree. It was His decree that Nineveh repent. Okay, so nothing about His decree ever changes. We see His decrees as they're, you know, we can look back in history and say, well, God decreed that because it happened. Okay, so, so uh, a couple things to understand. There are, there are what we could call conditional declarations of God, okay? Conditional declarations of God. So in this case, obviously the Ninevites was an example of this, of a conditional declaration of God based on their response. Okay? His warning was one that was meant to provoke repentance. His warning that the city was going to be overthrown was one that meant, was meant to provoke repentance and it was successful. And if you want to see a clear example of that, turn back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, this time chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 11. <clears throat> an example, and there's many of these in the Bible, obviously. This is an example of a con conditional declaration of God, okay? Meaning God says something, but it's not, un it's not an unconditional declaration. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 11. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. And then look at this. Just the opposite here. Or it's the same conditional declaration, but look at this in verse 9. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. That's an example of a conditional declaration. Which I think obviously was what was going on in Nineveh. They were given some kind of warning. And God relented, just like we see Him doing here in Jeremiah. Now, that as compared to there are unconditional determinations of God in the Scriptures. An example would be, you don't have to turn there, but an example would be the Lord's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.16 where He says this to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before Me. Your throne will be established forever. That is an example of an unconditional Determination of God. So no matter what David did or what he didn't do, this word of the Lord would come to pass. Unconditionally. So there's a difference there. And so, beloved, the point is this, okay? Because I think we can overcomplicate it. The point is this. God is consistent with His nature. He is consistent. He is consistent in His holiness. God was going to judge, or, or, or in His holiness, God was going to judge Nineveh. Okay, But Nineveh repented. And God in His holiness 
was able to have mercy on them, how could He do this? The same way He has mercy on any of us. It's because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Because all of God's wrath and punishment for anybody who would repent was poured out upon Christ. It's no different here. God was able to relent because of what Christ did upon the cross. So He is consistent in His nature because what throws people off is the verse in Malachi. I, the Lord, do not change. Do we have a contradiction here? Absolutely not. He does not change in His his character, right? He's always going to be holy. He's always going to punish sin. This would be a hard thing to reconcile if there was no such thing as the cross. But there is the cross, right? We tell people, God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He's not compromising His holiness in any way, shape, or form. I, the Lord, I do not change. He does not change His character. He does not change His nature. He is holy 100%. He is merciful 100%. They don't contradict one another. He's always going to forgive the repentant. Always. He's always going to give the, forgive the repentant. And He's always going to judge the unrepentant. That's all we have going on here. That's it. That's, it's really that simple. But we see the word, we see, oh, God's changing. But it says God will never change. We're getting confused in categories here. He's not going to change in His nature. That's why it's so important to study who God is, the attributes of God, and, 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 and what the Gospel means. And then all this, it just makes sense. God was able to have mercy upon them because He's a merciful God and, he, and, and, and Christ bore their sin in His body on the tree. He can remain holy and forgiving because He punished His Son in the place of all including the Ninevites who repent and believe all the way from Genesis to Revelation. The cross of Jesus Christ is why He could relent. Okay? He did the same thing for us. And then obviously, we take it even deeper. We can take it even deeper. He's always going to forgive the repentant. You know, and then you think about just how sovereign and gracious He is. He's the one who grants repentance. So if anybody's repenting biblically, it's because God is granting that to them. So I hope that helps, guys. This is really, it's not a complicated verse at all. It's been made that way. Um, I think by some people who would can, you know, be in the Reformed circles, they, 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 they so don't want to compromise the sovereignty of God. You're not compromising the sovereignty of God. God is holy. God is merciful. God always forgives those who, who repent and believe. So, And then lastly, guys, by way of application and in conclusion, four quick things here. They're on on your notes here to make a few comments about them. Is this. God is not done with you. Okay? God is not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done with us. He wasn't finished with Jonah. We see that. Think about this, guys. How rebellious the prophet was. I'm fleeing God. And the next thing you know, God is using him to preach a message. That's just how God works. (laughs) To preach a message that converts maybe more people than ever at one time. God chooses. It it, it says it pleased God to, to, to use the foolishness of preaching the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You get a guy that was spit out of the belly of a fish. He had to have been really ugly in appearance. Maybe maybe his skin dyed white, possibly. And God used that man to convert a whole city. God gets the glory. So He's not done with you. He wasn't done with Moses. He wasn't done with David. He wasn't done with Peter. And He's not done with you. Amen? Whether it's sins of commission, or whether it's sins of omission, in this sense, maybe you, maybe you know, maybe you know there's somebody in your life and God has been 
impressing upon your heart that you need to talk with them. To those who know the right thing to do and do not do it, to them it is sin, James 4.17 says. What are we to do, guys? God is a merciful God. He loves His children. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So He's not done with you. Just know that ever, as your child, He's never done with you until He's done with you and takes you home. Secondly, keep the message simple. This was a simple message, guys. God uses simple, clear messages. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was saved by a simple message. Did you guys know that? You ever heard his story? Real quickly. As a young, I think he was a teenage boy, Spurgeon said he wandered into a Methodist church. And the pulpit that morning was filled by, somebody was, somebody was filling the pulpit. Uh, the, 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 the normal pastor was not there. He said the pulpit was filled with a man who could barely read or write. Very uneducated man. And the man had this text. Look unto me and be saved. I think it was a text I read out of Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon said this man stuck to it, but he didn't, he didn't have much else to say. Look unto me and be saved. He said, anyone can look. Even a child can look. But, but then he said, look unto me, Christ. He said, don't look to yourself. Look to God. Look to Christ. And he said, after about ten minutes or so, he noticed the young Spurgeon sitting in the back. The simple man. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. And you always will be. You're always going to be miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And guess what? Spurgeon said, I looked. I looked unto Christ and He was saved. Only God would take a man who has the vocabulary of Shakespeare and save him through a message of look unto me and be saved through an uneducated man. If you've ever read Spurgeon's writings, you know what I'm talking about. That this man was saved by a simple message, look unto me. But that's all, that's all we need, right? If you don't know, if you, if you get tongue-tied, tell the person, look to Christ. Look to Him and be saved today. That's what we told Cameron last night. Look to Christ and He can save you. And God, thirdly, God is not only is He not done with you, God is not done with others. He was not done with the Ninevites. These were the most wicked, violent people on earth at the time. It was a violent city. But God wasn't done with them. Beloved, don't give up on those that you know who are, who are steeped in their sin, who are hardened in rebellion. Don't give up. He saved thousands in Nineveh. And as we, Shiloh and I were reminded last night, He has not finished saving His people. We must tell them. And then fourthly, we looked at He is a God of second chances. Amen? And really guys, it's not second chances, right? It's a thousand plus. That's what He is. He's a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. If you've heard the Gospel a thousand times and your heart is still beaten. But that chance is going to end. He's not a God of second chances after death. His mercy and His patience will end. Beloved, this is urgent. This is so urgent. Looking at that man's eyes last night, you saw hopelessness. You saw a, a, a life of pain and rejection. Rejected his whole life. And you just want to believe for him. Please look to Christ. Please believe. Because as bad as it's been, it's going to be worse. 
in eternity. He's a God of second chances, but not after death. People are in a spell. They don't, get, they don't even think about life after death. It's been appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Purgatory is a lie from the deceiver. Reincarnation is a lie from the deceiver. Don't worry about it. You can just come back as a dog or a fish or, an, or whatever. Or don't worry about it. You can just go to purgatory. Beloved, we must tell them that. And if you don't know Christ, you must know that. That after death, there's no more second chances. None. It's over. It's eternity. So, look unto Christ if you don't know Christ. And for those of us who do, tell them that. Look unto Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, You have reminded us once again in Your Word of how gracious You are. You have reminded us of how You use sinful people, God, who blow it. All of us blow it. And You continue to use us. Your grace never ceases to amaze us, Lord. We love You. We praise You. We pray that You will save our loved ones who do not know You. We pray for those who we minister to in our lives, God, who do not know You, that You will save them, that they will look under Your Son to be saved. Father, use us in this little short time, God, that You have us here on earth to do Your will. God, all praise and glory goes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says in His name we pray. Amen.